Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me from D.C. is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Pretty good. Uh, I am really excited to learn that just in 15 years, I'm going to have my own private spaceship in my garage. <laughs> this is Say least, what? Yeah, <laughs> this is according to the latest hypothetical from uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, who I just have to assume is like a secret uh, you know, uh, SpaceX investor, and he knows something we don't. But to kind of recap here, um, it was on Monday, there were oral arguments in a case involving union access to California farm workers when he brought up the hypothetical of people getting access to someone's private spaceship in their garage in 15 years' time. And I, I, I just, it's very artful the way that he's able to tie some of these ideas into oral arguments that otherwise have zero to do with them. But I was about to gift. say, good it is a gift. You're right. And good job to, to Justice Breyer for, for making that connection. Um, gotta love his hypotheticals. Yeah, but we're not going to talk about oral arguments this week because it's a pretty busy week of opinions and orders. So why don't we just jump right into the opinions and Natalie, you can talk us through uh, the first ruling that came down on Thursday morning, this morning. This morning, yes. One of two, um, Ford Motor versus Montana 8th Judicial District. It was an 8-0 ruling and so unanimous uh, without Justice Barrett being uh, weighing in. Uh, it was a win for litigants' rights and, and a bit of a blow to big corporations. So so this case, it involves two product liability lawsuits over allegedly defective Ford Explorer and Crown Victoria cars that killed one person and injured another. Um, the justices, in, their, in a majority opinion uh, that was written by Justice Elena Kagan, essentially ruled against Ford, which had been arguing that the case, that the suit should be dismissed and tossed out because there was like no specific jurisdiction since they don't design and manufacture the allegedly defective cars in the states that were involved. Um, the Supreme Court, though, rejected that argument and is allowing the suits to proceed. Um, they held that Ford's activities in the states, uh, you know, selling and repairing cars is enough to support a specific jurisdiction, as Justice Kagan wrote. In the opinion, um, when a company like Ford serves a market for a product in a state and that product causes injury in the state to one of its residents, the state's courts may entertain the resulting suit. So this has some pretty broad ramifications for corporations who might be facing product liability suits in, in states where they're not necessarily, you know, based or, or, or have significant operations. Right. I mean, essentially saying that so long as you're actively engaging with this market in your state, which so many, you know, multinational companies are, they could potentially be hauled into court and face some of these lawsuits. So a pretty significant ruling, as you said. I want to talk about um, the second ruling this morning on Thursday in Torres versus Madrid. Now, this was a pretty interesting Fourth Amendment case over the meaning of the word seizure in the phrase unconstitutional search and seizure. Um, so the court in Torres versus Madrid holds that an officer's failed to attempt to detain a suspect by shooting at them can still qualify as a seizure under the Fourth Amendment. It led to a pretty heated debate between two conservative justices uh, on the court over how to interpret, you know, historical precedent on the Fourth Amendment. Okay, so before we get into the debate, though, kind of can you lay out the facts of this case? Sure. This comes from. 
a lawsuit filed by plaintiff Roxanne Torres, who sued two New Mexico police officers who shot her in the back for fleeing what she says she thought was a carjacking at the time. So two police officers approached her in the course of their investigation into, I believe it was a, a, a drug dealer, and she entered her car, you know, seeing these people in their tactical vests and guns, drives away. They shoot at her, I think, something like 13 times, striking her twice. She's able to evade capture um, and go to the hospital. She's ultimately arrested, but files a civil rights suit, um, essentially accusing the uh, police officers of violating her Fourth Amendment rights against unconstitutional searches and seizures. And so that kind of tees up this whole debate about what actually is a seizure. Is a police shooting of someone technically a seizure if they still get away? And you know, the Tenth Circuit below ruled that it it is not a seizure. And in fact, they say that a suspect who is able to evade capture has not been seized under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, now, the Supreme Court on Thursday in Torres versus Madrid reverses and vacates that ruling in a five to three vote with uh, Chief Justice Roberts writing the majority opinion. So what did Roberts say about that opinion? And, and can you tell us also the five, you mentioned it was a five three uh, vote. What was kind of the breakdown here? Right, so this is a breakdown we've been kind of seeing more and more often lately with Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, his fellow conservative, joining with the three liberal justices to form a five-justice majority. Now, in dissent, we have uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, Justice Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito, the three kind of most conservative justices on the court. Now, Amy Coney Barrett, once again, is recused in this case, the case having been argued after or before she actually joined the court. But the debate comes down to the, the the dueling sides kind of disagree over their reading of the historical record. And in particular, what some of these cases from the common law and founding era say about the meaning of the word seizure. So now as Roberts is trying to decide whether or not uh, Torres here has actually been seized under the, you know, meaning of the Fourth Amendment that the constitutional founders would have actually intended, you know, he looks to some of these cases and he says, you know, there's a traditional rule here where even the slightest touch could constitute a seizure. And so if a touch is a seizure and the application of a, you know, force, like just a slight force to in, in, in an attempt to detain someone is actually a seizure, even if it's unsuccessful, then certainly he says a gunshot um, is a seizure under that um, kind of approach. Um, you know, he says a, a seizure can be as readily accomplished by a bullet as by the end of a finger. Now, this produces a pretty prickly and sharp dissent from Justice Gorsuch, who accuses the majority of totally rewriting history here. That sounds pretty strong. Uh, so, so what was his take here, Justice Gorsuch? Yeah, so, I mean, this whole idea that even a mere touch can be a seizure under the Fourth Amendment is something that Gorsuch completely disagrees with and thinks is uh, totally counterintuitive. And he basically says that this idea has been misappropriated from a line of civil bankruptcy cases from the 18th and 19th centuries and imported to the modern context of criminal law, and he totally disagrees with that. He accuses the majority of a schizophrenic reading of the word seizure, and he uses the example of like a ship, right, where you know if a, if a ship is fired at and ultimately escapes, you know, you wouldn't traditionally say that that ship has been seized because it was able to evade capture, and he kind of applies that to the context of a, of a suspect as well. Now, Roberts has a bit of a retort in his majority opinion and says, well, there's kind of another example here where, you know, what if you grab someone by the arm um, in an attempt to steal their purse and they ultimately... Uh, 
are able to get away. You would say that thief seized that woman's purse before she was able to eventually run off. And so they have kind of these countervailing examples here. But it was really Gorsuch's attack that the majority simply had an impulse to rule for the plaintiff here, despite, you know, history and law and precedent being on the other side. He says, you know, they just wanted to uh, Ms. Torres to prevail in this case. And that was what really rubbed Roberts the wrong way, where he says, you know, there's no call for such surmise. At the end of the day, we simply agree with the analysis of the common law of arrest uh, rather than the competing view urged by the dissent today. So he's basically saying, tone it down a little bit. You know, we, we just disagree on the facts here. So after this fairly testy interaction between the justices in this case, what's, what's next? What's left of the case? So there are obviously still significant hurdles before Torres can ultimately prevail in the case, as is so often the case with people seeking to hold police officers to account for alleged misconduct. Um, And the majority was careful to clarify. We leave open on remand any questions regarding the reasonableness of the seizure, the damages caused by the seizure, and the officer's entitlement to qualified immunity. So her... You know, eventually being able to secure some kind of damage or award in this case from the two police officers, that's still a bit a ways away. But uh, it's a hopeful step in the right direction for her prevailing in this case. So that does it for us in terms of opinions this week. Just two. I know we're waiting on many more. And hopefully the next few weeks we'll kind of see them coming in at a fairly steady stream. We can only hope. Um But there were also some significant orders this week on Monday. Um, And Robert's also taking a a bit of a a key role in some of them. That's right. And I think that you were kind of on the nose a few weeks ago when you profiled one case that the court seems to be interested in. Now, they didn't take it up, but they they spilled some ink on it, no? I'm like, I'm I'm sort of sad. I would have liked, I think I I would have liked to see this one go up just because I think it would have been an interesting case to to hear argued. Why don't you Um, break it down for us? So this is the antiquities case that we talked about a few uh, weeks back. Um, They are not taking up this case, which questions the right of U.S. presidents to create offshore national monuments, which both Obama and Bush used to protect large swaths of underwater land uh, for environmental purposes, a move that in the case before the court, you know, devastated fishing and lobstering and industries around Cape Cod. So the justices, you know, they decided to not review a D.C. Circuit decision that affirmed the president's right to create these monuments under the Antiquities Act. Um, but Chief Justice Roberts wrote separately to essentially say he would like the court to take a look at this issue, but it's just not the right case. Um, and it, it was an interesting opinion that he wrote um, attached to to, to the denial. Uh, he, you know, he made no bones about it. He's concerned that the offshore monuments represent a, a wrongful stretching of the Antiquities Act. Um, and he, he started the opinion with a bit of a, a cheeky pop quiz. Uh, you know, which of the following is not like the others? A, a monument, B, an antiquity, or C, 5,000 square miles of lands beneath the ocean? <laughs> so, uh, you know, he was, he, was, he was, like, taking his stance pretty clearly from the start of, of, of the opinion. Um, and, you know, essentially he thinks that these monuments of, uh, of underwater land um, should be looked at more critically in terms of just how much land is being protected. Because while the Antiquities Act does give this flexibility to set aside a monument um you're it's supposed to be limited to the smallest area compatible with the care and management of the objects to be protected uh, 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 you know justice roberts is arguing and um he thinks that 
this should be looked at in, in that light. Uh, but no court of appeals has addressed that question before. And this D.C. Circuit case just it, it, it wasn't a central enough issue in the petitioner's arguments for it to be um, kind of a good case to, to address that issue. So I suppose we'll probably see a mad dash to get the next (laughs) (laughs) Antiquities Act petition up to the Supreme Court. Well, there's at least one vote for a cert grant there, so that'll be interesting to see. Now, there was also another big cert grant on Monday. Natalie, I don't know if you saw this one. The Boston Bomber case was taken up. Yes, big headline-grabbing case, um, to to, to say the very least. Uh, Jimmy, I know you've been following this one. You kind of want to talk through what's at stake here? Well, put very simply, the government is trying to reinstate the death penalty for one of the two uh, Boston bombers, Zokar Tsarnyev, the younger brother of uh, Tamerlan Tsarnyev, who was actually killed during the pursuit of the bombers. Um, He was sentenced to death in 2015, but that was actually vacated by the First Circuit in a pretty, uh, you know, headline-splashing ruling in July 2020. Now, the Court of Appeals held that the trial judge had ignored its own circuit precedent when it refused to ask content-specific questions about prospective jurors' media exposure during the case. Now, this was obviously a huge headline-making case. Um, the Boston bombing, you know, was one of the biggest terror, domestic terror attacks since 9-11, and specifically in the city of Boston, uh, where the trial was held, you know, it was it was seen as very important for the judge, for the defense, and for the prosecution to kind of have a jury that was not tainted by uh, media bias or other types of biases. And so the Court of Appeals held that, you know, so if you're going to have this trial located in this city that was so emotionally gutted by this horrific crime, then you have to take kind of extra pains to make sure and preserve the integrity and the fairness of the jury. And the Court of Appeals said that the trial judge didn't actually do that because they didn't go into enough specificity when trying to understand you know, just how much media exposure to the case these potential jurors actually had. So that's one of the issues in the case. I mean, another one is that this comes at a time where the Biden administration has not yet been tested about really its position on the federal death penalty. And we now have a new attorney general in Merrick Garland, who, although has had exposure just to some of these high profile domestic terror cases, has also expressed reservations about the death penalty just because of the difficulties in implementing it. Implementing it. I mean, here we are in 2021 talking about um, a death penalty f- uh, sentence that came down in 2015, and there are several more appeals that Sarniev could probably exhaust before, you know, he actually faces an execution here. But um, this is a really big opportunity for the Supreme Court, at least, to clarify just what is the obligation and responsibility of a trial court judge in one of these huge, high-profile covered cases to root out media bias, especially when, you know, everyone has access to Twitter and Facebook and other social media networks where we're just inundated with news about some of these events, you know, and like there's hashtags, there's things like that. And that's to just kind of quickly wrap up. That's, that's also kind of underlying the background of this case is that some jurors had purportedly misled or disregarded the court 
about their online communications at, about the case, and one juror had even allegedly referred to Tsarnaev as a piece of garbage on her social media account, whereas another one had posted that they were summoned for jury duty um, in the aftermath of, uh, you know, in the beginning of the pretrial proceedings. And a Facebook friend commented, play the part so you get on the jury, then send him to jail where he will be taken care of. Now, both of those jurors were eventually seated on the jury, and so there is, a, a, you know, going to be some pretty difficult questions for the Supreme Court to answer about just how far uh, judges have to go to preserve the integrity of these jury trials, especially in a high-profile social media age. This this is one I think so many are going to be watching, uh, not not only, you know, kind of outside spectators, but lawyers, because this is, I think, you know, as, as we're living in the social media age, it's just something that's going to come up again and again. And this is coming, the cert grant's coming like in the backdrop of, you know, another major trial um, of the police officer, Derek Chauvin, and, you know, who's um, being tried over the killing of George Floyd. And that's been, you know, a, a bit of uh, complicated because of media exposure, right? The, the jury selection. So it's going to be, I think, really key to see what happens with what the justices say should be kind of the parameters for a court and a and and a, a judge's um you know expectations and and responsibilities um in in these kind of highly charged cases and i'm also eager to see just what the biden administration says in its opening filing in the case and to see potentially what differences it might take from you know the past administration's position in the case but I think that about does it for this week, Natalie. It's been, <laughs> there's a lot to get through, but. A lot of ground to cover. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that you're right. That just about does it for us, Jimmy. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Chater and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.